You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. I would say that the peak of the New Testament is the book of Romans. And the peak of the book of Romans is chapter 8, where we see over and over again this theme of the security of those who are in Christ Jesus, the unending security, the amazing life that the Holy Spirit brings for those who are in Christ. Then I would say that the peak of Romans chapter 8 would be Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So I encourage you to pull up a chair, looks like you already have, and let's come around the warmth of this passage together. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, no surprise whatsoever what chapter we are in. We're going just verse by verse through this incredible chapter of the New Testament, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Also, if you've been in church for a while, this will probably be a very familiar verse to you. Um, I would imagine many of you have heard this before, and more than likely, you have distributed this verse out to others as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, have you noticed that's a theme of Romans 8 also? This is a certain thing. We know this to be true. This is an absolutism. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe to understand what this verse is about, we need to first look at three things and what this verse is not about. Or what this verse is not saying. So here's the first thing that this verse is not saying. is It's not a promise for all people. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is not a promise for all people. It's a promise for a small scope. It's a promise for, for limited beneficiaries. So please don't hand out Romans chapter 28 just to anybody. It is for a small scope of the population. It's for limited beneficiaries, those who have a faith in Allah or a faith in themselves or a faith in a tree. This promise is not for them. Who is the promise for? Look at verse 28. For those who love God. For those who are called by God according to his salvation, his rescue purposes. So let me just fire this for salvo off this morning. It's impossible to be saved and not love God. And it's impossible to be unsaved and love him. If you are saved, you love God. If you are in Christ Jesus, if God has established you in Christ, then you love God the father if you are not a christian you are not saved you are not established in christ jesus you cannot love god now let me give some biblical legs to that pretty weighty statement if you want to write these down or just know that these come this this thought comes fully from the offering of scripture first corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 would say this first corinthians chapter 8 verse 3 would say this john chapter 14 verse 24 would say this 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 would say this. Actually, the entire book of 1 John would say this. If you are in Christ, you love God. If you're not a Christian, you're unsaved, not established in Christ, and you cannot love God. You do not love God. So Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is not a promise for just all people. It's only for those who love God, those who are in Christ, those who are called according to his purposes. Here's the second thing. It's not that God causes all things. Don't use Romans chapter 8 as a starting place to say, yeah, God, has, God did all that. God doesn't cause murder or perversion or self-centeredness. God does not cause us to sin. So it's not that God causes all things, but thirdly, it's not that all things are good. 
Here's the separation between the, the, the prosperity gospel and the biblical gospel. The prosperity gospel would say things are good. If you, if you have enough faith, things are good. If you, if you walk tightly enough with God, then, then all things are good. It is not saying here that all things are good. In fact, we know that here in this house. We know that, that there is darkness. There are horrific things. There are vile things. There are wicked things that happen in this world, even for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this, this passage, this particular verse does not say that all things are good. What about that little phrase there, all things? Here's a question for us because Romans chapter 8 verse 28 begs a lot of questions. What, what is the extent of all things? What is the extent of all things? Well, I just listed a few things out. The good things, the bad things, the significant things, and the insignificant things. I think that should capture it all. The good, the bad, the significant, the insignificant, the good things, they, they work for our good. Now, that is probably the easiest one to get to. Good things work for our good. Good, good health or functional relationships or a good reputation. All these things work for our good, but don't miss the second one. Bad things also, they do what? They work for our good. Two categories, either bad things that we have done or bad things done to us. These things work for are good because that's a part of the extent of, of all things, significant things, milestones in life. These things work for our good, whether it be a marriage or, or a new job or a promotion or, or a new chapter. Or maybe it's not a, a positive significant thing. Maybe it's a, a sad significant thing. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse or the loss of a marriage or the loss of a friendship. Maybe, maybe it's a new chapter that quickly went sour very significant thing in your life, but also there's the insignificant things. What, what does scripture say here? That all things, they work for our good. This is probably what we experience the most. Just the small insignificant things, those small decisions, the, the daily things, those maybe small disappointments in life, the monotony of life here in the States, Monday through Friday. All of these things, good, bad, significant insignificant. So I just made this next statement in first person for you to own. There is nothing going on in my life right now that is outside of the realm of all things. There is nothing happening even in this very moment, nor tomorrow morning, nor the remainder of this week, nor this weekend. There will be nothing happening in your life that is outside of the realm of all things. Now here's the next question. What are these all things doing? Verse 28, look at it again. All of these things are working together, or they work together. Uh, the Greek word there, synergeo, which is where we get our English word synergy or synergism. Synergism is a lot of things coming together from a lot of different angles, a lot of different elements coming together for a common purpose, coming together for a common function, coming together for, for a common goal. So here's all these things in our lives, all the good things that have happened, the bad things that have happened, the significant things that have happened, the insignificant things that have happened. They create by God's sovereign hand this synergy, this synergism, working everything together for a common goal, a common purpose, a common function. All things work together. That's the extent of all things. That's how far-reaching, Christian, your security in Christ truly is. All of these things working together. There's nothing, I don't think, that could bring more joy to the people of God, nor more trust, nor more confidence, nor more freedom, nor more happiness, 
to a Christ follower than, than to know this, that no matter the pain, no matter the problem, no matter the trial, no matter the circumstance or situation you have in life, it all works together for what? What does it say in verse 28? For good. For good. Here's the next question. What is our good? Here in the West, we would say, well, our good is a good job or promotion, or good relationships, or being happy, or money, or more money, or more opportunities, or more friends, or being healthy. That's probably what we would define as, as good, but what does the Bible here tell us? What does God say to us? What is our good? We have to go down to the next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. What is our good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here's our good. To be conformed to the image of his Son. This is our good, being conformed to the image of Christ, being conformed to the character, the nature of Christ. Listen, Highland, that is the best good there is for you. To look more and more like Jesus every day, every season. This is the best good there is. The best good there is for your relationships, for your marriage, for your parenthood, for your emotions, for your situation, for your relationships, for your education. For the situations in life, for your hurts, for your testimony, for your gospel sharing opportunities. This is the best for your life. That you would be conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus. This is the best good there is. Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 29 and verse 30 now in context. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, meaning the son, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, let me stop right there to help us understand that phrase, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, in scripture, when it uses the phrase brothers, or your Bible might use the word brethren there, it's speaking of the church. It's talking about the, the people of God, the, the sisters, the brothers, the daughters and the sons of, of God. But we see here that Christ is, is labeled or is mentioned or actually is esteemed as the firstborn among the church, or the firstborn among the brothers and the sisters. Now, don't be confused. It does not say there that he was the firstborn, two adjectives. It says he was the firstborn. That's a noun. Now, in biblical times, we don't practice this as much here in the West today, but, but, but the firstborn was the preeminent among the other siblings. Now, I love saying that because I am a firstborn, so all the firstborns out there, you can kind of sit up a little straighter if you want to, and those who are middle kids and below, I know you don't like this sermon already, but the firstborn was not two adjectives, it's, it's a noun, it is speaking of the preeminent among the, the family, the uniquely designated prominent one in the family. So certainly we can see that Christ, Jesus, is in the family the preeminently unique one, the one who is set apart, the preeminent, preeminent one among the rest of the Christian family here this morning. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Latin scholars, Latin theologians call this the the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And there are five verbs that we see right here that I want you to understand. Now, in some churches, this passage makes people really nervous because of one little word 
that starts with a P and finishes with a redestined at the very end of it. And I've even had a few people this week go, I'm Pastor John, I'm, I'm kind of nervous for you preaching this passage. And I would just say to everybody here today, let's, don't be nervous, let's be gloriously happy about this passage. There is depth and a richness to the understanding of how God in Christ Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has saved the believers in this place and saved those who are watching online today. There's five verbs. If I were you, I would underline them with a pen or circle them with a pen. Here's the five verbs that we see. Foreknew in verse 29, predestined in verse 29, called in verse 30, justified in verse 30, glorified in verse 30. Those are the five verbs, if you will, of your salvation. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now, it's important that you see this. Two of these words in verse 29, the first two verbs, foreknew and predestined, they are rooted in God's eternal purposes for you in the past. So those are the things that happened in the past. You were foreknown, you were predestined. The, the next two things intersect God's eternal purposes for you right now, this very moment, this very moment, this morning, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are called Christian. You are justified Christian, present tense, intersecting the lives of God's people today. Now, the last one is a promise in God's eternal purposes of salvation for those in Christ for an eternity future for the future eternity, the, the future glory of those in Christ. And so that's the, the word glorified. Now, the order is important because it just it traverses all of history. It allows you and I this morning to see in verse 29 and verse 30, God's eternal purposes for you and your salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. And it not only demonstrates the immense sovereignty of God, it also demonstrates the immense loving kindness of God towards you. Sovereign, transcendent, the boss of all that is seen and unseen, but also the God who is merciful and knows you and cares for you and is filled with a richness of loving kindness for your life. Who is the subject of all five of these verbs? I know it feels like we're in English class, but who is the subject of all five of these verbs? God, not us. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. So I'm, I might hurt some of your feelings with this next statement, but, but here it goes. We are not the center of God's salvation. God is at the center of his salvation. We have been saved with a God-centric rescue. We have been rescued with a God-centric salvation. So let's look at these five things, these five verbs. Those of you who are note takers, make space for five things. Here it is. Number one, God foreknew. We see this in verse 29, God foreknew. He knew you before you were. He knew your name. He knew your birth date. Here's what you can write down. He knew about you. He knew about your purpose. He knew even about your salvation before you were born. You see Romans chapter 8 was written to believers. He knew everything about you. Knew, knew the purposes of your life, the purposes he had for you. Knew, Christian, about your salvation before you were even born. Now, let me just tell you, this is why I'm so pro-life. 
Because in God's own image, God knitted us together and he foreknew you before you even existed. That is why there's value to life. Not only were you made, created in the image of God, you were also created by God. And if those two things were not enough, God knew about you before you were even born. Makes me stand in awe of the greatness of God, how great our God is. That he would foreknow everything, but more than that, he foreknew you. Here's the second one, God predestined. Don't let your hands get sweaty on this. This is beautiful. God predestined. Here's what you can write down. He reached out to you with salvation before you reached out to him. God was pursuing you before you pursued him. How about this for simplicity of an understanding of our salvation? He loved you before you loved him. In fact, Christian, make sure we're on the same page here. The only reason you love God is because he first loved you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. If this morning and this life, you have a love for God, we need to understand together biblically that that's just a reaction to the immense love that he expressed towards you. God chose you before you chose him. Need some red letters on that? Keep your finger there in Romans chapter 8. Let's go back two books, the book of John. It's probably 24 pages in your Bible. Let's go to John chapter 15 together. John chapter 15. And let's see the order of the choosing. Let's see how we were saved. John chapter 15, verse 16. If 24 pages is too much for you, it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. But John chapter 15, look at verse 16. Look what Jesus says. This isn't muddy, Highland. (laughs) This is so clear. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, Jesus says, he may give it to you. Just very clearly again, verse 16, the beginning few words, you did not choose me, Jesus said, I chose you. Jump down a few verses to verse 19 of that same chapter, John chapter 15, verse 19. Jesus continues, if you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, how do we know we're not of the world? Because I, here's Jesus, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. You can go back to Romans chapter 8 if you want to. Let me just take off my preacher hat for a second and my pastor coat. And that's all I'll take off today. I'll just take off those two things. Speaking as a brother, a brother in Christ, the longer I live, the more realization I have that God initiated my salvation. I didn't start it. I didn't create it. I'm not going to be the perfecter of it. I don't finish that. It is God who does all those things. God who initiated salvation. God who created salvation. God who carries my salvation. God who completes my salvation. You see, I was, I was seven. Not that far from here. Here in Waco as a seven-year-old boy. When I turned my life to Jesus, and I'll be honest with you, as a seven-year-old, I thought I was doing God a favor by being on his team. Okay, God. Lucky you. 
I'll be on your side. In retrospect and biblically understanding now salvation, I didn't pursue him. I didn't choose him. He was pursuing me. He was choosing me. I thought I loved him as a seven-year-old, but the only reason I even thought I loved him is because first, he loved me. You see, firstly and sacrificially, he expressed his love toward me by the giving of his son, Jesus, by the cross, by the sacrifice of the treasure of heaven. So how do you preach that, future preachers? How do you share that with your neighbors, gospel bearers? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. So I'll just pass it along with this great man said, the prince of preachers said, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elects, I would go around lifting the back of coats. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will. And when whosoever believes, I know that he or she is one of the elect. Highland, that's where I fall on this issue. I will preach Christ. The spirit and the bride will always say come. But it's God who does the choosing. It's God that does the pursuing. It's God that first loves. And our reactive nature is to simply love him in return. So God foreknew. God predestined. Look at our third verb. It's in verse 30. God called. And really, biblically speaking, if you look at the full counsel of God's word, how is it that God calls? What does he call us to? Here's the first thing. It's a primary thing. God has called you to himself. Through Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's really what the essence of Romans chapter 8 is about. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the hero of Romans chapter 8. God has called you to himself to be known, a God who has revealed himself now in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit allows us to know the Lord, the God of the universe, through the Son, Jesus Christ. So first of all, the the primary calling, before you can even talk about a secondary or tertiary calling, you have to start off first with this, Christian, that God called you to himself. If you're not a Christian, perhaps right now God is calling you to himself. How do you know? Do you long to know God? Do you want to know him either online or here in person? You desire to know God. That means that God is calling you because someone who's not called by God does not desire God. Who wants to surrender their life to another Lord? Except those who are called and chosen and pursued and loved by God. So God called you to himself. Here's the second thing. God called you out of death and he called you out of the world. And he called you out of sin. And more specifically, he called you out from underneath the penalty of sin, which is death. The death that lasts forever. Separation from God. Here's the third thing God has called you to. He called you to himself. Called you out of death. He called you to serve. Or he called you to minister. Somewhere down the line, and probably Baptist churches, honestly, are the worst of the worst of this. About 100 years ago, maybe 130 years ago, churches started hiring ministers occupationally to do the work. And so the people thought, well, because here's this this big chasm between clergy and, and laity. We'll give the money, you just do the work. And somewhere down the line, I think a lot of churches have have fallen for that. We'll 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 pay for the ministers, we'll applaud them or critique them or you know whatever, we'll give you a paycheck. You just do the work. You know what the biblical recipe actually is of a healthy church? 
the pastor and the staff, we are to equip you to do the work. We're to equip you to do ministry. And you may or may not know this, Christian, but you are a minister. You may or may not get a paycheck ever from a church, but you're a minister. Which is why it's so important that you know your spiritual gifts. Because your spiritual gifts, they build up the body. Your spiritual gift of evangelism shares the gospel of Christ, the good news with people in Waco and the world, this neighborhood and the nations. The calling, primary calling was a calling to God himself. And in that calling, it was a calling out of the world, out of sin, out of death. But here's the, the forward motion calling. It's a calling for you to serve, to serve the body, to serve others. Because ultimately, when you do that, you're serving Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. God justified. Verse 30. Maybe the best way to describe the word to justify or justification or justice or justness is to think about um, a scale. Because really this is here in the West what justice is based on is, is a scale. That's why you can go downtown in Waco and see on top of the uh, courthouse a blindfolded lady, or you can go to D.C. and say this, see the same thing, who's holding, holding some scales. And so anytime the scales are perfectly across from one another, that's in a state of justness or a state of justice. It's a justified scale. But once something is placed on one side of that scale, the scale is no longer justified. There's no longer a justice to that scale. And so when something is placed on this side, it, it, it is lowered. So something's going to be placed on this side to, to make that scale just again. And so whether that be uh, you go to the grocery store, to HEB, and you get your items, and all of a sudden there's, there's an unjust transaction going on until your credit card is swiped. And then all of a sudden it's, it's a just transaction. There, there's justice now to this. In the, in the criminal court world, if someone is, is, is found guilty, then the that the, the balance begins to move until something is placed on this side, whether it be uh, time in prison or whether it be money that has to be paid to, to bring justice, to bring a justness to the situation. Well, here's the spiritual scales of all of eternity and the spiritual scales of your life. Just think about all of your sin over here. I mean, just your sin of all of your life, your sin maybe of this week and maybe the sin of the rest of your life. And all of a sudden it begins to to tilt just a little bit. Now you need to add in everybody else's sin here at the 10 o'clock as well. All of their sin in the past, all their sin present, all their sin to come. And all of a sudden that scale begins to, to shift even more. It's even more unjust now. Then you, add, you have to add in the 840 sins as well, the 840 gathering this morning. And you must add in the 1120. There's a lot of sinners at 1120. And so certainly like this, the scale is beginning to, to really be out of, out of balance now. Now multiply that by everyone who has ever lived in Waco, ever lived in Texas, ever lived in our nation, ever lived in, in the eternity past, the history of the world, and place all of that sin on the scale something had to bring justice. And it was God who was rich in mercy who sent his son Jesus and who shed his perfect blood. The most precious commodity in the universe, the precious blood of the treasure of heaven, a spotless lamb without defect to bring a justness to our lives. So for you and all of your sin, the only thing that can justify you is the blood of Jesus. Here's where you can write your notes. He puts you in right standing with himself by the sacrifice of Jesus. The cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, 
And this is not preached very much in pulpits in our nation today. And maybe it's not preached enough from this pulpit, but let me say it very clearly. It's still the blood of Jesus that makes us as white as snow. It's the purchasing agent of God to justify you, to allow the scales of your spiritual lives to be just. Lastly, God glorified. And even though this is in past tense, it's, it's prophetic past tense. In other words, because God said it would happen, it's, it's as good as done. I, I called a staff member last night and asked him to, to do something uh, today here at the church. And he gave me a one-word answer. He said, done. I mean, really, it wasn't done because I asked him to do it today. But when he said done, I, I know this staff member well enough that this staff member has always been faithful, always faithful to follow through. And so when the staff member said to me, done, I could check it off my list, even though it had not been done yet. I knew the character of the staff member who said done. When he said done, that was past prophetic tense. Like it's done. It's not really done, but it's going to be done. It's as good as done. And so when God says here, every believer in Christ will be glorified, even though it has not happened to you yet, it is as good as done because God promised it. Those in Christ will be glorified. What does that mean? It means that all will be right within us. Remember what 1 John says, we will see Jesus as he is and we'll become like him because we will see him just as he is. Everything will be right within us. We see that here in chapter 8, verse 17. Pastor Mark preached on this a few weeks ago, the very end of verse 17. We're going to suffer with him in order that what? Verse 17, that we may also be glorified with Christ. So all will be right within us. Not only all will be right within us, all will be right outside of us. Our bodies will be made new. This is what Romans chapter 8, verse 23, the last part of verse 23 says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions of sons. What does that look like? The redemption, the renewing, if you will, of our bodies. So all will be right within us. All will be right outside of us. And thirdly, all will be right around us. Chapter 8, verse 18 we looked at a few weeks ago. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the, the bad, the stuff that we're going through, it's not even worth comparing with what? The glory that will be revealed to us. That's that all will be right around us. So all right within us, all right outside of us, all right around us. And, and, and Highland, isn't this the deepest longing of our hearts? Everything would be right in here. Our bodies would be right. And everything around us would be right. This is what it means that God will glorify his people, those he justified, those he called, those he predestined, those he foreknew. What a good, sovereign, capable, merciful God. Would you stand with me, please, and let's read these three verses together. Would you read aloud with me, please? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. What a great salvation you have rescued us with. Oh, great God. And we're not the center of it. We're the beneficiaries of a God who loves sinners. We're the beneficiaries of a God who loves to redeem and call humanity and creation back to himself through Christ, empowered by the Spirit. So Father, we thank you for the beauty of our salvation in Christ. We thank you, God, that we can trust your sovereignty in the good, the bad, the significant, the insignificant. That all these things in synergism are working together for the common purpose. What's the common purpose? Our good. What is our good? That we be conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. We are predestined for that. So it's in the name of this great King who came to earth to ransom and to purchase those who love God. We sing and we pray.